This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. We dive into stories of true crime, from unsolved cold cases to historic kidnapping to gangsters and beyond. We are your source for true crime. We thank you for listening. Welcome to the debut episode of Coffee and Crime, your daily Monday through Friday crime news update from True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Our first topic the Idaho student murder's house is being demolished a year after the quadruple stabbing. The University of Idaho on Thursday executed plans to demolish a house near the school's Moscow campus where four students were murdered in November 2022. Demolition work began in the pre-dawn darkness Thursdays as crews used an excavator to rip apart the front of the house at 1122 King Road shortly before 7 a.m. Debris was dumped into trucks and hauled away from the property as construction workers, police officers, and university officials watched the scene unfold. Within two hours, the home had been leveled. By the end of the afternoon, the lot was reduced to a patch of dirt with a fence around it. A memorial with photos, flowers, candles, and teddy bears still sits on a rock wall at the front of the property. The home, just steps from the university campus, became an extensive crime scene last year when quadruple murder suspect Brian Koberger Allegedly stabbed roommates, apologies for butchering these names wrong, Kaylee Gonclaves, Madison Milgan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin in their respective bedrooms. University, uh, University President Scott Green released a statement saying, It is a grim reminder of the heinous act that took place there. While we appreciate the emotional connection some family members of the victims may have to this house, it is time for its removal to allow the collective healing of our community to continue. The university announced on December 21st that it would be going through with demolition plans during winter break after the house was given to the university last spring. The demolition process could take several days. Uh, families issued a statement Wednesday evening criticizing plans to move forward with the demolition, saying the physical structure could be significant for Koberger's pending trial and the jury's understanding of the crime scene and how the events of November 13, 2022 unfolded. The families of the victims presented questions such as what the two surviving roommates could hear from their respective bedrooms, what pathway Zana Kernodal took when she received the DoorDash order that morning before she was killed, and what the suspect could have seen from outside the King Road house from his car. The family said, quote, we feel that the University of Idaho and the court has put us in a horrible position to have the voice or opinions. We all along have just wanted the King Road home to not be demolished until after the trial and for us to have a trial date so that we can look forward to justice being served. Is that really too much to ask? 
My families would like to thank everyone across the country for your support on this issue and appreciate all your hopes and prayers. The university said in a statement earlier this month that after Koberger's trial was delayed in the fall, both prosecution and defense asked for access to the house and have both gone into the house in the last two months. Uh, prosecuting attorney Bill Thompson said in a statement Wednesday that investigators had no further use of the 1122 King Road premises. Saying, quote, based on our review of Idaho case law, the current conditions of the premises is so substantially different than at the time of the homicides that a jury of you would not be authorized. We appreciate the UI's help in facilitating the investigators gathering the necessary measurements, etc., to enable creative illustrative exhibits that should be admissible and helpful to the jury. Former FBI profiler Mary Ellen O'Toole told Fox News that if Koberger did commit the crime he is accused of, depending on the legal discussions he has had with the legal counsel, there may be a sense of relief that a jury will never be able to access the home and view for themselves how a quadruple murder could have occurred within that structure. He now knows that a jury will never be able to see for themselves how thick or not thick the walls were, how one could access and leave the house without being intercepted. If the offender had been in the home before and knew where Rome's rooms were located, how easy or not it is to hear between the walls, etc., knowing a jury will never see the inside of the house could give BK a sense of relief and even a sense of satisfaction. At the same time, however, it could be possible, depending on his personality, that Koberger was looking forward to walking with the jury through the Moscow house one final time when he could relive his crimes. Forensic psychologist Dr. Chris Mohandi told Fox News that he thinks the demolition is good for the victims and it prevents it from being a morbid attraction or place other like-minded individuals go to connect with their anti-hero. It is somewhat consistent with what had happened in other places like Columbine where the library was made into a memorial. As far as some offenders, it takes away a place that might be able to go to relive and fantasize if that is their thing. Prosecutors allege that Koberger, who was a criminology PhD student in Washington, drove from his Pullman, Washington apartment to Moscow, Idaho in the early morning hours of November 13, 2022, and stabbed four victims in their bedrooms. Mogan and Gonkales, who were best friends, were found deceased in the same bed. He apparently spared two surviving roommates who were in different bedrooms at the time. Investigators tied Koberger to DNA found on a knife sheath left at the crime scene next to Mogan's body. Koberger allegedly fled Pullman after the crime and traveled cross country with his father back to his home state of Pennsylvania while police were still piecing evidence together. Pennsylvania State Police and the FBI staked out his family home in the Poconos before they found a familial DNA sample in their trash bin that matched the DNA on the sheath. Prosecutors also said cell phone and vehicle data tied Koberger to the crime scene when the murders allegedly took place. In our next uh, update, California teen was <clears throat> kill, uh, arrested for allegedly killing his parents, injuring his sister with multiple evidence or weapons. Excuse me. A 14-year-old boy was arrested for allegedly killing his parents and severely injuring his sister with multiple weapons. The Fresno County Sheriff's Office revealed in a press conference last Friday that the teen, who was not identified because he is a minor, was booked into Juvenile Hall and faces two charges of murder and one charge of attempted murder. Fresno County Sheriff John Zanoni said that police received a 911 call around 7.40 p.m. 
from a 14-year-old boy who claimed that someone had broken into his house and attacked his parents and sister before fleeing the area in a pickup truck. When police arrived on the scene, they found two deceased adults, later identified as Lu Yang and Sei Yang, both 37, along with an 11-year-old girl who had life-threatening injuries, according to Zanoni. He said the girl was immediately transported to Community Regional Medical Center, where she underwent surgery. Zanoni said that after an initial investigation, police began to find inconsistencies with what the 14-year-old had claimed and what had happened due to what was found at the crime scene in interviews with witnesses. Zanini said, quote, evidence shows that he had fabricated the story of a break-in and was responsible for using multiple weapons to attack his mom, dad, and sister. Zanoni said another seven-year-old boy was also at the home of the, at the time but was not injured. According to police, he is a sibling of the 14-year-old and 11-year-old and was placed in the care of family members. He noted that police have not yet been able to figure out the motive behind the attacks and that the investigation is ongoing. Zanoni said that the investigation will include looking at the boy's school history and family members to see if the boy has a history of mental illness or violence. Because it is out of the ordinary, it's not something that's normal for someone to act out this aggressively and this violent in this manner, only one time, or this being the first incident. Uh, the Fresno County Sheriff's Office has not um, made any further comments, and the case is now being reviewed by the Fresno County District Attorney's Office. And now on to our next episode. The body is believed to be of a missing pregnant Texas teen and her boyfriend were found fatally shot in a car. The suspected bodies of missing pregnant Texas teenager and her boyfriend were found in a car at San Antonio. The remains believed to belong to Savannah Nicole Soto, 18, was who was reported missing last week, and her boyfriend, Matthew Guerrera, were found in a Kia sedan, the San Antonio PD announced on Tuesday. The couple had sustained gunshot wounds in the car belonging to uh, Matthew. There are two people in the car. They're deceased, San Antonio Chief of Police William McManus told reporters, and they believe it to be the missing woman and her boyfriend. The bodies haven't yet been formally identified pending a medical examiner's post-mortem ex examination, McManus said. However, the corpses may have been in the car for three or four days, also described the crime scene as very perplexing. San Antonio detectives are now uh, probing the case as a possible murder. Detectives right now are looking at this as a possible murder, but they don't know for sure. Because of the complex crime scene, they can't say for sure what they're dealing with. Officials didn't disclose whether a firearm was found in the Kia. McManus added that family members were alerted that the car was in the location it was discovered in, and they phoned it in to authorities. No other information was released. Soto vanished on December 22nd. She was last seen leaving the Valencia Lofts apartment in Leon Valley, roughly 12 miles northwest of San Antonio around 2 p.m. that day. The teen was reported missing after she didn't attend a scheduled medical appointment to induce her labor the following evening. Soto's disappearance triggered a statewide coordinated law enforcement adult rescue alert, or clear, or clear I should say. The alert included images of the gray 2013 Kia Optima that the two bodies were found in. Prior to the discovery of the bodies, authorities said in a press conference that Soto's disappearance was a threat to her health and safety, noting she'd eclipsed her due date by more than a week. 
Soto's family, alarmed by the teenager's disappearance, issued a series of frantic public pleas, begging for a safe return ahead of Christmas. The grieving family also said that she'd been living with Guerrero at the time of her death. Police said that an unborn child was found to be killed in their investigation of the bodies found in the car. And on to our next topic. Gypsy Rose Blanchard was released from prison early and says she regrets plotting her mother's murder every single day. Gypsy Rose Blanchard pleaded guilty in 2016 to second-degree murder and the death in the death of her mom, Claudine D.D. Blanchard, and was released from prison on parole early Thursday morning and saying, says she regrets plotting the slang. Blanchard, now 32, was sentenced to 10 years in prison for the 2015 murder of her mother, who allegedly forced her into unnecessary medical procedures for years. Blanchard was released from the Correctional Center in Missouri Thursday at 3.30 a.m., three years ahead of the end of her prison sentence. Spokesman for the Missouri Department of Corrections announced this on Oxygen. Believed to be a victim of fictitious disorder imposed on another, formerly called Munchausen syndrome by proxy, a mental illness in which someone pretends that a person they're caring for is sick when they're not. Blanchard has alleged that her mom abused her by acting as though she had various illnesses and conditions, making her undergo treatments for them. Dee Dee was found dead from stab wounds in a bedroom of her home near Springfield, Missouri, in June of 2015. Nicholas Gojon, a Wisconsin man who was 26 at the time and whom Dee Dee's daughter had met online and developed a romantic relationship with, was convicted of killing her. Blanchard, who was 23 when her mother was killed, testified during the trial that she helped plot Dee Dee's murder after feeling there was no escaping her abuse and all the unnecessary medical treatments and surgeries imposed on her. Blanchard gave uh, Nicholas the knife used to repeatedly stab her mom and provided details about her mother's routines. She told people, quote, I was desperate to get out of the situation. Despite her desperation at the time and the alleged abuse she suffered, Blanchard now says she regrets her decision to ask Nicholas to kill her mother, which she did while Blanchard waited in the bathroom at the home she lived in with Dee Dee. Saying, quote, nobody will ever hear me say I'm glad she's dead or I'm proud of what I did. I regret it every single day. She added, quote, if I had another chance to redo everything, I don't know if I would go back to when I was a child and tell my aunts and uncles that I'm not sick and mommy makes me sick. Or if I would travel back to just the point of that conversation with Nick and tell him, you know what? I'm going to go tell the police everything. I kind of struggle with that. Dee Dee allegedly forced her daughter into a number of painful and uncomfortable procedures for serious illnesses her daughter never had, lying to medical workers and family members. Blanchard was forced to use a wheelchair because her mom claimed she suffered from muscular dystrophy, even though the child had no issue walking. Dee Dee also claimed her daughter had leukemia and shaved her head, and Blanchard was even made to use feeding tubes at one point. Blanchard said, quote, obviously I knew that I could walk and didn't need a feeding tube, but everything else was a really big confusion for me. Recalling an epilepsy diagnosis, Blanchard added, whenever I'd question it, my mother would say I had a seizure the night before and didn't remember. There was always an excuse. Blanchard was kept out of school by her mother and held back from having a relationship with her father and other family members, saying that she was very sheltered, which kept her from seeing the full picture of what was happening and reporting it. 
Blanchard is now married to Louisiana teacher Ryan Anderson, whom she wed last year while she was still in prison. We're in love, she told uh, people. Nicholas was convicted of first-degree murder and armed criminal action in Dee Dee's killing and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now 34, he's behind bars at the Potosi Correctional Center in Washington County, Missouri. Ahead of their prison release, Blanchard admitted she was still coping with her troubled past. Saying, quote, it's a journey, she said to people. I'm still really trying to come to a place of forgiveness for her, for myself, and the situation. I still love my mom, and I'm starting to understand that it was something that was maybe out of her control, like an addict with an impulse. That helps me with coping and accepting what happened. And before we go for today's episode, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Birch Gold. In a world where the economy can be as unpredictable as the weather, it's crucial to make sure your investments are secure. That's why I trust Birch Gold. They've been a leader in converting our IRAs and 401ks into a tax-sheltered IRA backed by gold and silver for years. Why gold and silver? Well, they're not just shiny objects. They're assets that have held their value for centuries, protecting wealth through every kind of crisis imaginable. And Birch Gold's team of specialists provide the knowledge and peace of mind you need to ensure your retirement savings are protected. Here's the best part. For our viewers, Birch Gold has a special offer. By simply signing up for a free information kit, you'll learn everything you need to know about protecting your hard-earned savings with gold. I've gone through the kit myself, and it's incredibly informative and helpful. Don't wait for the next market crash or the next economic downturn. Take control of your financial future today. Visit Birch Gold using the link down below and get your free information kit. Remember, it's never too late to protect your savings. And with that, we'd like to remind you, you can support the channel by hitting that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up if you like our video. Comment below on the cases on the news we've covered. And of course, you can buy us coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNS. Your support helps the channel grow upgrade our equipment, bring a new host, and one day take this show on the road. As always, thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll catch you tomorrow on the next episode of Crime and Coffee. You have been listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps podcast and on Twitter at True Crime NS. And follow us on Instagram at True Crime Never Sleeps. Thanks for watching. If you want to support the show, Buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNN or become a patron at patreon.com slash true crime never sleep.